The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We continue to discuss the drama of atheist humanism by Father Andrew Black. Uh, we're on chapter one of the part on Dostoevsky, and this is called Comparison with Nietzsche, and we're on the second section, uh, The Torment of God. Uh, of course, is that a subjective or an objective genitive? That is to say, is God being tormented or is someone being tormented by God? We'll find out. Joseph, you're, you're our leader. Well, yes, I have nothing highlighted actually until 291. So I'm guessing that one of you is going to jump ahead of me. Oh, well, I definitely saw you right away because Dostoevsky uh, was going to write a book, uh, The Life of a Great Sinner, in five parts. Uh, on page 286, the bottom of that quote in the text, he says, In the course of his life, that is, the sinner's life, the hero will be now an atheist now a believer, now a fanatic, now a heresiarch, and then an atheist once more. But he's, he's sort of talking about his own autobiographical experiences. That he's, he's had all these experiences. He wants to write about them. Mm -hmm. Well, the very first line of this section, yeah. God has tormented me all my life. So says Kirillov in The Possessed. Uh, but Delubak is arguing that it's Dostoevsky's own mm -hmm. cry. Yeah. Right. So he is the guy struggling with God and and then showing being able to show in these characters he creates all of the ways this struggle is manifest in the man's life. And it's interesting because I maybe I didn't understand you, Father, what you said before when you read from that quote on 286, because if this is autobiographical, um, Dostoevsky doesn't doesn't end as an atheist. He ends as, no. a, as an orthodox believer. So, uh, you know, right. I, I think it's a whole point. I think, you know, if, if he's clearly fiction, novelists uh, uh, inject autobiographical elements into their stories, I mean, of, of, of course, because they've got to draw from experience. Um, but I think we have to be a little bit careful sort of making, making a direct mirror. This is just, this is Dostoevsky. This is Dostoevsky when it's one I'm of his characters. I'm only quoting Dulubach. Right, and, and Delubach makes the point later on, anticipating your comment, Joseph, that yes, we do have to be careful when we're reading fiction to uh, not read into every character that this is how the author thinks or feels or believes. But Delubach makes the point somewhere that Dostoevsky, uh, uh, I wish I could find a quote now, um, is actually quite deliberate in making these characters mouthpieces of much of his own experience. And um, you're right, uh, he doesn't end as an atheist. I mean, not that we know of, we don't know how he actually ended, but we can have hope that he didn't end that way, no, given that he became did. that he became a profound believer. 
But there is a point where Delubach says, in his case, we are in fact seeing Dostoevsky speaking of his own experience in a lot of these characters. And also, it's not necessarily sequential, because what he says in 286 is, uh, he dreamed of writing a comprehensive work split up into five novels, which should recount the life of a great sinner and contain everything for which he himself will contain it. Doesn't mean it follows the sequence right. of his life. Right. Uh, yes. Right. Yes. Good point. And, you know, I remember early on when I, whenever I first read Dostoevsky, uh, really enjoying the novels and being a little puzzled a bit and being confused because of all the Russian names and same person has six different names, whatever. Uh, but I can see now, especially with Lubach as a guide, that the reason his novels are so powerful is that he did think about these things. He did live through them. He was sympathetic with others. He did anguish through the doubts of the sinner and so on. Well, he did go to prison an atheist and came out a believer, which is exactly what Raskolnikov does. And he even had um, uh, some woman handed him a gospel uh, as he on his way to prison, which he did read, just like Raskolnikov does. Yeah. So um, there are some uncanny resemblances here um, that... And he did live a tormented life in so many ways, not only being epileptic, which one biographer says that epilepsy began after he was put before a firing squad for being part of an anti-Czar demonstration. And he was arrested and and they were going to they put him before a firing squad squad. But when they fired the guns, they were empty. So he lived, but he lived, but a broken man and then was sent to prison. And then, you know, I mean, this man's experiences were. Intense. Yeah, and I, it's, I, I, but I agree with Joseph also. In fact, I think it might be somewhat analogous to that distinction you make with Tolkien between allegory and what is it, attribution or allegory and applicability. 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 So, you know, these stories are an allegory of the life of Dostoevsky, but there's an applicability there going both ways, you know. Uh, oh, here's the quote I was thinking of on 295 from de Lubach now. This is obviously his theory, yeah. and uh, we can uh, try to argue with him. He knows more about it than I do, though. But he says, um, through the characters of his novels, this is the bottom of 295, who all have something of himself in them, he delivers himself from his temptations. And by this, we know that though he has not been insensible to the power of denial, that power has not conquered him. Yeah, I, but then at the top of the page there, you know, he's quoting from the brothers Karamazov, and then he says, that again is Dostoevsky, exclamation mark, at the top of yes. the next page. Again, yes. it, you know, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit stark and blunt to say that is the author when you're actually quoting from the novel, because it's not quite, as Father said, it's not formally allegorical, even if it is obviously applicable. And I, it's another image I have from Lord of the Rings because, you know, when I first read that, just you know, uh, without stopping almost as I was in Germany and trying to work on my doctorate, and it was very boring work, uh, but I would read Lord of the Rings on the way to and the way back from the library. And uh, I, I thought to myself, this, he's got to be a Catholic. I knew nothing about him. This is a Catholic. This is 1970. He's got to be a Catholic, you know. And of course, he says in his letter to Father Robert Murray yesterday that it's Catholic entirely. But I liken it to a kaleidoscope. 
you take a kaleidoscope, it's like taking the sacraments and the Trinity and Incarnation and breaking them up in little fragments, and then you put it in the kaleidoscope and turn around, and it makes a pattern, but you don't see the Trinity there or the Incarnation or the sacraments whole, but you see all these fragments that are reorganized in a way that, that nourishes the story. Well, in fact, is- you know, I, 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 apropos this conversation, what you just said about that, that quote from Tolkien to Father Robert Murray, the Jesuit, when he says the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, but he then says, unconsciously at first, consciously in the revision. So yes. that's exactly the process, right? Just because he is a Catholic, this sort of Catholic uh, morality, this Catholic worldview is going to be subsumed within the story unconsciously, subconsciously, irrespective. But then he went back and, if you like, crossed the T's and dotted the I's with specific Catholic allegorical connections. Well, I think Dostoevsky's work is a little bit different from that. And look at the quote from himself about his own novel, The Brothers Karamazov, on the bottom of 296. 296. Mm-hmm. So this is Dostoevsky talking. Oh, yeah. The dolts have ridiculed my obscurantism and the reactionary character of my faith. These fools could not even conceive so strong a denial of God as the one to which I gave expression. The whole book is an answer to that. So deliberately an answer to atheism. You might search Europe in vain for so powerful an expression of atheism. Thus, it is not like a child that I believe in Christ and confess him. My Hosanna has come forth from the crucible of doubt. Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually also it's beautiful, it's beautiful phraseology there. Um, uh, can we go back? Because we've seen we've seen about leap, leapfrogged over my, my first reference. Oh, yes, of course. Two ninety one. Um, we went to fast forward. Um, so I just wanted to on, on page two ninety one. Uh, there's this sentence by the Lubach. Uh, Christ did not come to explain suffering or solve the problem of evil. He took evil upon his own shoulders to deliver us from it. Uh, you know, and, and I think that this is another aspect of Dostoevsky's novels. He's allowing for mystery. He's allowing for doubt. It's not a work of apologetics or explication of uh, moral philosophy. He's not trying to get to grips with the mystery of suffering and trying to understand it as a consequence of love or all of those things which he could do because he's a novelist, right? So, so basically, he's leaving room for mystery. He's leaving room for doubt. The point is that Christ... Uh, took evil upon himself for our sake. That's the fact that animates it. He's not trying to solve why suffering. That's a different question, right, which is, which is not something he's, he's dealing with. He's leaving room for the mystery. But it's an apologetic, and I think a deeper sense, in that through his characters, he is showing what happens when you think this way about yourself or about God or about the world. You know, We'll see more of that later, but... Uh, uh, his characters are credible. Why are they credible? Because he's showing dramatically in a narrative the logical consequences of certain trains of thought. You know? mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, well, page 295, just a, one little thing there that new paragraph that being in the middle of the page about Brothers Karamazov. One might add that Ivan himself has glimmerings of faith and that Alyosha, as we've just seen, is surprised at times by feelings of disbelief. So again, these are not cardboard cutout characters for no, sure. No, no. You know, 
They're all yep. complex characters. Which again, okay, uh, Dostoevsky again, is showing us. Um, I, 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 I'm putting the brakes on. I'm going to keep going back because you've leapfrogged over the few things I did highlight here. So page 292, when uh, the Lubak is, uh, is, um, is comparing Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, uh, when Nietzsche hails an apogee, Dostoevsky only foresees bankruptcy. <laughs> These two men came to a fork in the road that proceeds from man. And while one yielded to the lure of the path ostensibly leading to man who has become a god, to the overman, the other took the way that leads to God who has been made man. So yeah, again, you the fork in the road and you choose the path of pride or the path of humility, basically, is what it mm -hmm. what it's about. Do you embrace God or do you call yourself God? And then on, on page 293, um, talking of Dostoevsky, middle of the page. Thus, if he judges the immoralist, it is not without having understood him. For just as he felt the overwhelming impact of universal suffering, he was alive to the glamour of evil. His gaze did not only plumb the horror of man in the denial of God, it measured his greatness too. So although Dostoevsky did not take the fork in the road that Nietzsche took, he understood those who do take that fork. And that's why I think the novels are so profound because he can actually empathize with the with, with the overman, with the Ubermensch and, and with the Nietzschean perspective, even though of course ultimately he's doing so in order to expose its uh, its ultimately facile nature. Well, can we move on? Well you're leading Joseph, but I mean I'm always yeah, interfering. I, 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 I'm done with putting the brakes on. We can now we can now zoom ahead. Put put your foot in the pedal. So we'll go to the next section in the presence of Jesus. Yeah. What does he mean by that, Joseph? Uh, well, thanks for putting me on the spot here. Um, I'm going to go down perhaps to the words of uh, Andre Gide on that page, that, that page 297, the beginning of the section. Um, in the presence of the gospel, so that, that might, might be the, the answer, in the presence of the gospel, Nietzsche's immediate and profound reaction was, it must be admitted, jealousy. It does not seem to me that Nietzsche's work can be really understood without allowing for that feeling. Nietzsche was jealous of Christ, jealous to the point of madness. In writing his Zarathustra, Nietzsche was continually tormented with the desire to contradict the gospel. And then, uh, that, then, then the Lubach commenting upon Gide, commenting upon Nietzsche, uh, the bottom of the page, that is shrewdly observed, and a host of details could be cited that go to prove it. So again, very interesting, because obviously we, we think of philosophers, generally speaking, and we're presuming they're, they're employing reason, right? Um, that's that's, that's we, we, we associate reason with philosophy. But of course, that Nietzsche is animated by an animus, right? Mm -hmm. He's actually animated mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. a jealousy, to use Geed here, by an animosity towards God, towards Christ, uh, and, and in the, ultimately he's basically saying that reason is nonsense, right? And that basically subjectiv sub subjectivity is the only reality. Uh, there's not an objectivity that, that, that's valid. So, you know, Nietzsche is not actually employing reason, and I don't think he's even pretending that he is. We'll see later the expression, I think the Lubach makes it, that uh, they're not really atheists, they're anti-Christians. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I can't help but laugh at this follow-on, Joseph, on the bottom of 300, 
where uh, the following this long quote from Nietzsche himself, uh, where Nietzsche is saying, believe me, my brothers, he, meaning Jesus, died too soon. He would have recanted his own doctrine had he lived to be my age. He was noble enough to recant, but he was not mature enough. His young man's love lacks maturity. That is why he hates men and the earth. This is Nietzsche now. And then Delubach, poor Nietzsche, reproaching Christianity with being founded on resentment. So yeah, this- and that reminds me very much, Vivian, of, uh, of um, the heretic, the modernist heretic in um, in uh, the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, uh, whose whose perspective is that the tragedy of, of Jesus was that he died too young. Yeah, and if he lived to be an old man like me, he would have you know realized, of course, that, that that his doctrine was incomplete, and we need to be more modern about things. <laughs> right. Well, don't you think maybe Lewis might be alluding to Nietzsche there? Possibly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Lewis obviously understood his philosophy very well. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Yeah, and again, page 299, I've got a little quote here again. Um, 
uh, Nietzsche had a grudge. This is towards the bottom of the actual non-footnoted part of the page. Nietzsche had a grudge against, quote, this presumptuous being who is to blame for the fact that the little men have long been riding the high horse. So this actual, you know, disgust and disdain for humility, for for the ordinary person. And of course, I mean, the only alternative to that is that the, the, the little man is trampled underfoot by the by the Ubermensch on the horse. I mean, you, you either have the tyrant or you or you have Christianity. I mean, that that's it's, it's a Nietzsche again. How do you come to grips with this man? Because quite clearly, if you're going to be this presumptuous, the basic the, the strong man needs to be on top. It means that the weak are just crushed, and and well, he doesn't seem to mind that because he's Nietzsche. <laughs> yes, but if you try to be the strong man, that is to be God. What happens to you? You go mad. Yes, exactly. It, it, it's an internal contradiction with your very being as a creature. Yeah. So then he, de Lubach is setting up now this contrast between Nietzsche's attitude of superiority and strength and all the rest of it, and now goes to the uh, biographical details of Dostoevsky, which I mentioned when we first began. On page 301, uh, in the sort of in the middle there, Soon after having faced the specter of capital punishment, this is when he was put before a firing line and there were no bullets in the guns, he was deported to Siberia. The convicts were caught up from the world and they were even denied books, but an exception was made in favor of the gospel, which pious women handed out to them on the road to exile. God bless those women. In the evening, on his return from back breaking toil, Dostoevsky would take up the little book that was his only treasure, which he kept under his pillow. He read it and reread it, meditated upon it, steeped himself in the gospel. When he came under a less rigorous regime, he immediately asked for the works of the fathers of the church to help him in his commentary. From then onward, the gospel was his inseparable companion. So here you've got Nietzsche over here, uh, sarcastically criticizing the gospels and Jesus and the teachings of Jesus from his from his high horse. And now you have a man doing hard labor in Siberia, and this is his only treasure. This is his lifeline. This is his hope. This becomes his love. What a contrast. Yep. Maybe Nietzsche should have spent time in a Siberian in labor camp, <laughs> and maybe he would have had a different attitude. Last line on that page. In the convict prison, Dostoevsky encountered Christ. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded, uh, you know, in escape. Oh, really, that, that is the cardinal fact without which his work cannot Not be explained. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm, um, oh, sorry. I, I cut you off. I'm sorry, Father. You know, I, I'm reminded here, obviously, not just of Raskolnikov, but also Solzhenitsyn. It was exactly the same thing. He went into prison as an atheist and came out of prison as an Orthodox believer. So there's, there are parallels here, obviously, between Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn. Mm hmm. And one of the beauties of reading literature, which is vicarious experience, is that hopefully we can have some sense of what it means to be in prison and to find Christ without ourselves having to go to prison, you know? Yes. I mean, please, God, we can learn from the experience of other people and not have to learn everything the hard way ourselves. Well, as, as one who did embrace 
Christ in prison. I, I, I have more in common with Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn on this one than I do with you two. But, uh, but I do agree. You don't have to go to prison to learn the lessons. <laughs> well, you know, but we go. We, we, even though I was never behind bars, I was in a prison. And I was in the kind of hell. And that's where I found Jesus, too. So right. that's, that's why I always have loved Dostoevsky's novels. I always felt they were, yeah. they were I mean, so I'm, realistic. It's just a manifestation of suffering. And, of course, all of us are going to uh, – uh, we can't escape suffering, even if we escape the, the physical prison. We can't escape that metaphysical suffering, that, pris that prison. So, But on page 302 here, we mentioned how he comes out, a believer, uh, how the, the gospel was his sole treasure in prison. But look at this letter he writes just after his release and just in the middle of it. This is what it is. To believe that there is nothing finer, deeper, more lovable, more reasonable, braver, and more perfect than Christ. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an encapsulation. You could, you, if you could unpack that, I mean, you could write a book about that. What is it that's finer about Christ? What is it that's deeper about Christ? You have a separate chapter on each of those uh, you know, characteristics that Dostoevsky ascribes to Christ. Yes. And the next page, um, uh, obviously, just sh shout me down, shut me down, whatever. But um, six lines down, um, this man, um, this man has insulted Christ in my presence. But in but in insulting him, he has never asked himself, "Who are we to put in his place? Ourselves?" Mm -hmm. No, he has never given a thought to that. And what's the alternative? Again, it's the same thing. We, we, we either have Christ as God or we try to make gods of ourselves. And, and that is our own, that paradoxically, that strength is our weakness, right? That's, uh, that's our Achilles heel that, leading to madness. Now, we, I mean, I think Russia is a Western country. Oh, try to tell them that. Uh, <clears throat> well, if I, if I can actually say there, uh, quote Solzhenitsyn when I saw him. Solzhenitsyn said, people call me a Slavophile, and of course I love my country, he said, but I, I see Russia as part of the West. Well, there you uh, go. He said that if the Iron Curtain had come down and the cream of Western culture had seeped in over the top, I would have rejoiced. But the Iron Curtain came up and all the dregs of Western decadence came in. Mm. So again, you know, which West? He say, he's the same as us. He's part of that Western civilization. Russia is part of that Western civilization. We need to look at it, the novel, right? The, the, the great Russian composers, it's all part of the Western tradition. Where, where else does it fit? But in which sense would you say Russia is not part of the West? Well, uh, I, I'm not the one saying it. Well, uh, we, Dostoevsky himself, uh, well, look at this quote from Dostoevsky in 304, now that you've brought up this question. Well, that, I was preparing for that quote, yes. Yeah, that the West has lost Christ. Is that what you were looking yeah. for? Yeah. Reflecting upon the West, which a strong party in his own country would have liked Russia to take as his model, he says, the West has lost Christ, and that is why he's dying. That is the only reason. Now, he say, he's writing this in the 1800s, right? Late 1800s. But in what sense is Russia not part of the West? Yeah, uh, I mean, we're not part of the West either as, 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 as Catholic members of Christendom. Christendom's not part of this West. I mean, the whole point is, what West are we talking about? And again, Solzhenitsyn said... The Enlightenment was, was a break with Western civilization because it set up what he called anthropocentric, um, what's he actually called, anthropocentric something or other. In other words, that, 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 that the Enlightenment was a turning away from God uh, uh, towards uh, a secular humanist perspective of things. Um, and so 
uh, what which West are we talking about? I mean, clearly, um, you know, I I don't I don't subscribe to Western materialism. I don't subscribe to the to, to Karl Marx, who's certainly Western. You know, I I don't subscribe to Nietzsche, who's certainly Western. So it, it, we have to define, I think, and distinguish. What do we mean by the West? Do we mean Western civilization, Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome, or do we mean the progressive, uh, modern, uh, anthropocentric experiment? Well, let's unpack that a bit because, of course, Russia as a country extends to the Pacific Ocean, which is certainly as far east as China, and Japan, and so on. But we, we think of, let's say, Eastern religion. We think of India, you know, or we think of China as being Asia and not not Europe. Uh, even though it's one continent, you know, China and Saudi Arabia are all part of one continent. Uh, so there's that east-west difference for sure. But I, think but I would say one thing there, Father, even. The comma, the comma, comma, co- Joseph, comma, comma, or semicolon. Okay. Because that, I was t- trying to do a, a parallel thing here. But, but then, so we can say there's a west in con in contrast to that east of India and China, let's say, civilizations. But you're saying within the West, in that sense, there's been a bifurcation of those which were uh, heavily influenced by the by the uh, Enlightenment and the, the Slavic nations, Byzantine Empire, Russia, which were not. And so there's a distinction within the West of the, the the West, the West, West, and the East, West, or something like that. Right. Well, there's been there's been a struggle within Russia, of course. Uh, any more semicolons? Yeah, that's <laughs> any, right. That's a, that's a period. <laughs> um, no, that uh, the, there's been a you know even within Russia, there's this struggle between those who want to uh, Westernize in the sense of making Russia, you know, I mean France, for instance, was a major influence upon uh, upon Russia in the. Uh, 18th and 19th centuries, um, and and those that, that wanted to retain, you know, some sort of Slavic identity separate from this Western identity, and it's complex because you know that the 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 the, 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 the French identity was um, the the France that led to the revolution, the post-revolutionary France. So it's not Christendom per se that that the, that they're distinguishing between, and and again, geographically, the vast majority of people in Russia live in the the west of Russia, not way out in the boondocks. And in fact, even if right out in the boondocks, what you get to keep going west, you end up in Alaska. So it's, <laughs> at some point, the east becomes the west anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit complex. It's also made complicated. <clears throat> and uh, I can only cite other people, right? I'm not an expert on these matters. But uh, when you read Polish historians, uh they are very strong in their opinion of the differences between Poland, which they consider a Western nation, a Western people, and that includes the Lithuanian Commonwealth that at one time Poland was a part of as one big thing, which went farther east than the current boundaries of Poland. Uh, they, the reason why they see a big cultural difference is because at a certain point in time, almost all of Russia up to that border, up against the Lithuanian Commonwealth border, was the Mongols had conquered all of that and even made incursions farther to the west. And so uh, the, the, this Polish historian was explaining that the difference in mentality and cultural 
feeling, if you will, is very, very different between the cultures that got dominated by the Mongol Empire, which was the biggest empire on the face of the earth, I think, ever, stretching all the way from Beijing to... Um, Farther west than Russia and Poland, actually. Yeah. Yes. When so it, when it is Germany. So, so we're talking... Okay, so... And I, to tell you the truth, not knowing much about this history myself, I was complete eye-opener to me that the, the cultural impact that this domination by the Mongol Empire had on those peoples, on their sense of, of their governing principles, their sense of rights. We think of rights as being something invented by the Enlightenment or something like this. Well, the Lithuanian Commonwealth had a very, um, you know, I, I don't want to use these adjectives because as soon as I do, I'm, I'm labeling it something that it really isn't because it was a Christian kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> but they had religious uh, tolerance, for example. Yeah, Vivian, if I may, first of all, one of the big reasons that, that, that the Poles have an antagonism towards Russia is because, of course, Poland is the is, is the bridgehead of Western Christianity, of, of Roman Catholicism, you know, in Eastern Europe. So it's on the front line, if you like, against orthodoxy. And certainly there is that there is a definite East West you know, as in Constantinople, Rome, right? And that is real. The, the, the Orthodox Church or churches uh, are, are obviously in schism from Rome. So that's absolutely. But the other thing, just to keep things complex, you know, that we need to remember that the, 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 the Bolshevik Revolution was Western imperialism. Uh, and that's certainly the way that a lot of Slavophiles would say, because these were Western ideas, the ideas of Karl Marx, Right, Friedrich Engels and the, and these ideas that came out of Hegel and what have you, these all Western ideas that polluted the Russian intelligentsia and led to the communist revolution. So the whole thing is very, I mean, it, just a question, I think, of not being, we need to be conscious of not oversimplifying. I think that's the I key thing. I totally agree with you. And Pope John Paul II, whose own mother was Ruthenian, right? My husband's father's family is Ruthenian, right? On the edges, the, the, uh, edges of Poland. They don't consider themselves Poles. Um, it is complicated. You're absolutely right. And John Paul II, I give him a lot of credit when he was Pope. He did a lot more than any previous Pope to try to reunite the Christian world, East and West. He said, we need to breathe with both lungs. Yeah. He saw this as a tragedy that the Christian world had been divided um, for all of these political, social, geographical even, look at where these mountain rangers are and all the rest of it, reasons. And, um, you know, his prayer was for the reunion of Christian people everywhere, right? So yep. you're right. You don't want to oversimplify or make cartoon characters out of these differences or whatever. Uh, yeah. But so yeah. then, okay. with respect to Dostoevsky, for him... The decadence of the West meant the decadence of the Catholic Church. Correct. He lumped those together. You know. So he was anti-Catholic to the core, yep. anti-West, not the West you're speaking of, the Christian uh, ideals and right. all that. Not that, but what Europe had become by the, by, we're talking about the 19th century here. The Golden Age was already over, folks, if there ever was one. <laughs> we're talking yeah, about what, 19th he, century he Europe. Even have the High Middle Ages because he was opposed to the Catholic Church. So for him, you know, the, the, what we might have considered the Golden Age, rightly or wrongly, for Dostoevsky was still not a being because the Catholic Church was the problem. So you're right, with, with Dostoevsky, it's a very deeply ingrained uh, anti-Catholicism, which, which we're dealing with. And we see later on in this chapter, okay, so if you do uh, 
uh, renounce the papacy and communion with it. And we're now going to have these orthodoxies of all these kinds, Russian and Greek and all that. And you end up with these autocephalous churches. There's going to be a tremendous temptation for those churches to become national religions, nationalist churches. And we see that temptation at work now in Russia now. And we see it in Dostoevsky's time as well, where um, to be Russian Orthodox, does that mean you have to be a Russian nationalist or imperialist or whatever? And we see that struggle in his novels. There are voices of different characters arguing for this kind of Russian orthodoxy that's completely wedded to Russian nationalism. That's always the danger with the autocephalous churches. Good. I think we yeah. should wrap up the session and wrap up this chapter, but I'm certain there's one more remark that Joseph wants to make. <laughs> You're right, Father. You mean the, the three exclamation marks in the, uh, in the margin on page 307? Well, uh, that I've written. The great uh, humanists, Shakespeare and Goethe, for instance, are generally pagans. I, mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think yes. need to make a comment except the fact that I disagree. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and, and then basically on the final page, um, uh, 308, I, I like the fact that he says, let us avoid the word. He says Dostoevsky's type of genius is at once profoundly human. Let us avoid the word humanist, which is ambiguous. And I and I think that, that that's that's very wise. The word humanist has so many different definitions and you, you stick the word Christian in front of it. And, and what does that mean? Um, so I, I, I agree with him. Now, let's talk about being human and not being a humanist, whatever that does actually mean. Good. Well, let's let's conclude here and we'll begin next session with Chapter two, the bankruptcy of atheism. Thank you all for listening and watching. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.